Hello all, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whenever you're watching or listening to this podcast, I am back. The Goddess Project is back and this season I have taken on a ton of ideas, okay? So hello to all of you that are returning. Thank you. Thank you so much for continuing to follow me and especially for following me in the dead time uh, when I'm not recording (laughs) And for having faith that there will be another season and there will be another season. So I really appreciate that. I've been doing a lot of traveling, um, working. I'm working on a new book on Artemis of Ephesus. And so there's a lot of things going on. But I really, really love being here. I really love communicating with you all. I really love sharing stories with you all. And so I'm so glad that I'm I'm back in my back in my seat. Uh, For those of you that are new and for those of you that are returning, my name is Dr. Carla Ionescu. I am an ancient historian. My PhD studies focus on the goddess Artemis. I wrote a book called She Who Hunts, Artemis, the Goddess that Changed the World. And that is my first book in a series of Artemis books that I have lined up. Um, And I can't wait to share with you all. My travels and my journeys often are connected to the goddess Artemis. In fact, I would say she's solely my guiding light, not to get a little sappy with you all. But um, I also enjoy other goddesses such as, for example, recently um, Hecate and Kybele and, and other goddesses that I call sort of powerhouse goddesses that came before or existed before the Greeks arrived and then became part of the Greek pantheon, a bit by force, a bit by culture, that kind of stuff. So that's that's my work and that's who I am. I teach at the university here in Toronto in Canada and I teach ancient history ofs, and then I teach some religious studies courses and women's studies courses. Um, I have founded, I'm the founder of the Artemis Research Center which right now is an online center, but I hope one day very soon will be a real center. And the center will have things like courses that are coming up. Yay. Registration is opening on Tuesday. And there are online courses called Goddess Basics, which are short online courses that are self-driven, that have lectures and material to read and some things to do. And they're a lot of fun. They're short courses. If you wanted to learn something about a goddess and you didn't want to take a whole long course and you you wanted to have a quick sort of foundation for that goddess, that's why I made these courses. So I've got 10 goddesses on the go. I'll put the link um, in the description for the Artemis Center and for the goddess courses and the registration. And there's an early bird discount. So please follow through the links and uh, and get the early bird discount if you're interested in registering for the courses. Um, And so that's what I do. I'm also co-hosting a travel tour to Turkey through Anatolia, which I'm very excited about. If you scroll through some of my videos under my account, you will see that there is a talk that Paul and I do about where we're going to be going in Turkey and Anatolia. I'm so excited for this because as some of you know, I really love to see remote places and I really love to film and talk about remote places. And so this trip is a dream trip for me. Um, I've been to Turkey a couple of times, but this trip 
is three weeks long, although you can take one week at a time, depending on everyone's schedules. But for me, I will be hosting it for three weeks long with Paul. And it's just a slow, beautiful trip through some of the most ancient sites in the world. And I cannot tell you what a dream this trip is for me as well. And being able to guide people through it and talk about the sites and talk about the goddesses. It's just, yeah, it's, 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 it's a dream. Um, and so if you'd like to know more about it, check out the description as well below this video um, or visit the artemisresearchcenter.com if you're listening to this podcast and check out the travel, the goddess travel page, because uh, I'm very excited to share this with you. And we have limited spaces on this trip because it's still a small trip um, and it's very unique in its itinerary. And so I'm very, very excited. So if that's something that you have, you know, if you have the spring open, we're leaving April 28th and the trip, if you want to take three weeks, we come back May 21st. So if you've got three weeks and this is something that you really enjoy. Um, come with us. We are cool, casual, and knowledgeable yeah, uh, about all the sites that we're going to go see. So that will be really exciting. Um, and so that's kind of what's happening and what's new. Um, yeah, that's kind of what's happening. What's new? There's a bunch of other things uh, that are happening and that are new. Oh, for example, actually, before we get started on this episode, um, this season is going to be jam-packed because I've decided to add a couple of other series or sub-series. So I'm going to do the 20 episodes as you've seen with the trailer uh, and the list that is under the trailer. And those are my episodes, which we're going to do together like we are now, starting with Ariadne and Dionysus, which is what we're doing today. But I'm also going to add a series called Goddess Talks, where I'm going to be interviewing scholars that I admire that work on the goddess. Because one of the things that's become really interesting to me is how do scholars feel about goddess work? And especially scholars that are working in the field of ancient history, scholars that are working in the field of goddesses. How do they feel about it in their personal lives? How do they come to it? How are they inspired? That kind of thing. What are they working on? And so that's something that's really of interest to me as a scholar working in, in the goddess world. And academics tend to be, we're very isolated. <laughs> we like, we're very introverted. We like to be on our own. And so often, I don't think we talk enough to each other about our work and our experiences. And so I thought I would add that. And the other thing that I would love to do that I've been thinking for a long time of doing is just a short, little short episodes on museum artifacts, my favorite museum artifacts. Sometimes I photograph things that are not really Artemis related or, or sometimes they are. And they're so like, I'm just staring at them and I'm like, oh, I have to make a post about this or I have to talk about this. Um, and then I kind of store them in this bank of like museum oddities, you know, and I never talk about them because life just happens. And so I would like to push myself to do like a short, you know, 10 minute, you know, short little 10 minute episodes on pieces in the museum that are interesting or odd or people don't really talk about very much. And uh, and so I'm adding that to our schedule as well. So, yeah, it's going to be an ambitious season, my friends. Um 
And so I hope that you'll be patient with me as I record everything and upload everything. And I really hope that you'll enjoy it and that you will let me know in the comments what you think. And yeah, that you come along for this journey, for this journey with me. So that being said, um, let's talk about our very first episode. Our very first episode for season two is on Ariadne and Dionysus. And I'm calling this episode the power couple of the ancient world because, whoa, what a power couple um, Ariadne and Dionysus are. I cannot tell you how much Ariadne has been in my life lately. I do have a story that's sort of a, a personal spiritual story, a personal journey story. Um, and I don't know if I'm ready to, I'm not, I don't know if I'm ready to, uh, what do you call it, to share that with you all. But I do, she came into my life last year. You know, I, I didn't really think about Ariadne very much, to be honest, Um I can't believe it. Sorry, I'm just like thinking to myself now, why didn't I think of her for so long? But I really didn't. I mean, I knew of her and Theseus for a long time. And, you know, um, I read Mary Renault's Theseus book, which is wonderful, or earlier on, maybe a couple of years ago. And I really didn't think of her much until I read Jennifer Saint's book, Ariadne, which really skewed my point of view on Ariadne herself and made me wonder like did do I know enough about her did I really look her up and study her um as an academic when you're doing your PhD thesis you have to be very focused on a topic right so the very nature of being a PhD doctoral student for example is that you stay focused on the very thing that you're studying and so while you're an expert in the field, right? So I can talk about mythology, especially Greek mythology, Greco-Roman mythology all day long, because that's something that I come up against over and over and over again. But when you're working on your thesis, really you, you're you like eagle-eyed on, on this one thing and this one goddess. And of course, for me, as you know, that's Artemis. And so, and once I finish my dissertation and then you're working and you're doing things, et cetera, et cetera, you don't have as much time to look at other goddesses in detail as in primary source text and all that kind of stuff as you would um, normally just for your own interest. But now because I've published the first book, so the pressure's off the first book and I'm working on the second and because I've been asked to lecture in places, I really love traveling to lecture at like retreats, to do workshops to speak at different places across the world. And people have invited me to come and speak about a variety of the Olympian goddesses or the Greco-Roman goddesses, which I love. And in doing that, it allows me to refresh my knowledge in preparation for the speaker, the or the speech or the workshop or et cetera. And now that I've built these courses online, again, there's a lot of background research um, and just getting everything right. You know, that's one of the things I really want to, clarify is even if you take a short course let's say on a goddess one of the things that i that i really want to emphasize is that the material that i'm teaching you is as accurate as primary source allows 
Yeah. And then from there, of course, you can go on to other sources and more. Eventually, I'll be building more intermediate courses and then advanced courses and things like that. But um, not everyone wants that. And so some people just want to know, okay, give me the foundation of this goddess. And so for me, that has really opened up the doors. And as you know, from last season, that really started in the sense that I would pick something that I thought was interesting. And then I would dig into the research and then I would create, you know, this podcast or episodes for this podcast. And so I am doing that exactly now, but I cannot believe that Ariadne like slipped on by until I had this very powerful vision. I was invited uh, to a retreat in London. I think I've talked about it in season one. And it was a retreat where I spoke about Persephone and we dived into Persephone workshops and it was really wonderful. And we had this moment of visualization an ecstatic dance and I had this vision and it was so powerful and uh, that really led me down a path with Persephone and Ariadne and so in many ways that sort of kept going while I was in Crete when I was in Crete perhaps because my attention is drawn to her you know obviously Artemis is at the forefront of my mind and so I love, love, love seeing everything about her and collecting everything about her. But every now and then Ariadne would pop up and I would be reminded, oh yeah, like don't forget about her. And so I think that all of that has culminated to this point where I get to talk about her and only her freely. Well, when we'll talk about Dionysus, yeah. Uh, but what a powerhouse couple these two are. And what an incredible story they have. But I just want you to think about power. Okay, so the power that they have, the combined power that they have, the combined responsibilities, the combined power that they have is really unlike anything else. I know that a lot of people love Persephone and Hades, so do I, although their relationship is complicated and there's always controversy around did he kidnap her? Did he go willing? Did she go willingly, etc.? But here in Ariadne and Dionysus, I would argue we have a much more powerful relationship, a much more amicable relationship, and a love affair that is committed, producing a bunch of son, sons, which we'll talk about in detail, which in the Greek world, that is a huge, right? So they have five sons together, although there's some debate over the other one, two of them. But anyways, they have, she, Ariadne produces a great deal of sons, which is really fascinating. Um, and, you know, it has, a, it has a bit of a tragic end, but also an immortal end kind of thing. Right? So an incredible, incredible. I would say that Ariadne um, would be sort of the, the intuitive powerhouse. The, the intuitive, powerful woman, while Dionysus is the rebel god, right? He's a rebel god. He's a demigod, yeah? Uh, we don't have time in this podcast to go deeply into Dionysus, but I would like to in the future because he is, I think, the most complicated god, male god, in the Greek pantheon. And that's because he's actually not Greek, but he comes out of the Eastern, um, he comes out of the East and he has all these sort of complications. But the most the, the, the most interesting complication of Dionysus is that he has a, a human mother. So he's really an early Jesus figure. And a, 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 he has a mortal mother and a, a mortal father, Zeus, 
And the other thing that's really fascinating, I'm just thinking of it right now, is that Dionysus goes into the underworld and grabs his mother and saves her. So who is Ariadne? So these are some of the things that we're going to cover or that we're going to consider um, about Ariadne and Dionysus. How did they meet? <laughs> that is a story for the ages, uh, which then turns into a love story for the ages. And what is Ariadne the goddess of? So I think one of the things, one of the misconceptions about Ariadne, because she was said to be human and the daughter of King Minos, that she's human and not a goddess and she actually is related to a goddess and some people believe that she may have been uh, one of the older goddesses again like all the other goddesses all the other olympian olympian goddesses uh, but she sort of became humanized or uh, priestessized because she's the priestess of crete um did Dionysus and Ariadne have a monogamous relationship? And did Dionysus cheat on Ariadne? And how does the love affair end for these two? Uh, we're also going to look a little bit at Ariadne in popular culture. But I would like for the focus of this podcast or this episode today to be Ariadne more so than Dionysus. But of course, these two will overlap each other. So let's get into it. Who is Ariadne herself? So I'm going to read you what Homer and Hesiod said. So Homer and Hesiod are writing around the 8th century, 7th century BCE. Um, most people date Homer just slightly before Hesiod, but they're around at the same time. And so Homer says uh, in his Odyssey, he says, Ariadne, the daughter of subtle Minos, whom Theseus bore off from Crete towards the hill of sacred Athens. Yet he had no joy of her no joy of her, I, I say that in quotations, which basically means he didn't get to have sex with her, since before that could be, she was slain by Artemis in the Isle of Dia, which is Naxos, because of the witness of Dionysus. So this short two sentences, three sentences, is actually the foundation of numerous myths we're going to discuss around Ariadne. A few of them, the being slain by Artemis, you know, I'm going to take that personally and talk about it. The fact that the island of Naxos is also the island of Dia, Dia meaning goddess, right? Uh, sometimes mistress. Um, and because of the witness of Dionysus, what does this mean? Right? What, is it, what does it mean? Anyways, we're going to get into that. Hesiod says, and golden haired Dionysus made blonde haired Ariadne the daughter of Minos, his buxom wife. And Zeus, the son of Cronos, made her deathless and unaging for him. So Hesiod, Hesiod, both of these men are complicated um, because the golden hair emphasis is something that I think trips up Hollywood all the time because then we have a bunch of blonde Greeks and everyone's like, oh, Greeks were blonde and you have all of these debates about scholars around hair color. One of the things that scholars realize is that golden hair tended to be, excuse me, a godly affectation adjective. And so that the, the radiance of the halo produced golden hair and that this depicted a type of idealistic image of the gods. Homer, who writes before his yacht slightly around the same time, 
doesn't bother too much. Um, he does sometimes provide adjectives for us um, of the different gods and goddesses, their eyes. He, he loves talking about eyes, you know, and how their eyes shine and light a foot. For example, he always calls Artemis light a foot and she has golden arrows and all these kinds of things. Um, but Hesiod and his golden hair um, depictions are really interesting um, because Greeks themselves, everyday real Greeks, mortal Greeks and ancient pre-Greeks, Mycenaeans, Minoans, etc., were not golden hair and were not um, in any way uh, surrounded by people who had golden hair. So anyway, sorry, that's a little bit of a tangent, but it's interesting. It's really fascinating that Hesiod really wants to make clear that Dionysus was golden haired and that he married a golden hair um, Ariadne so that there's something uniquely special about them. Anyways, and it's funny that Hesiod said that she's his buxom wife, right? Although that is a translation. Um, and so, but the idea that she's sort of his... I would say that is a reference to her being able, being fertile and being able to produce as many sons. So those are the two sort of earliest references, primary source texts that we have to Ariadne. Now, Ariadne is really, her name is really interesting because it's derived from an ancient Cretan dialect. Okay. So there are elements. So for example, Ari means most and Adnos means holy. And so her name literally translates to most holy. Okay. Um, and so there are scholars, for example, um, Stilanios Alexio believed that Ariadne was a pre-Greek name, but also her story was pre-Greek. And again, we're not surprised by that, as most of these stories would have been pre-Greek. Um, and there is a long, long tradition that Ariadne has pre-Greek origin yeah? and perhaps pre-Minoan uh, origin. And so who is she? She is the daughter of King Minos, the king of Crete, um, who is the son of Zeus himself, and Pasiphae, who is his wife, and the daughter of Helios, uh, the sun god. And so Ariadne is in the bloodline of the Olympians. And so it wouldn't be a surprise to anyone that she is herself either a demigod or a demi-deity or a deity herself. Yeah. Um, she's often been uh, called the daughter of Crete um, or her mother is sometimes referred to as Crete. So she's very much associated with Crete, which of course is very close to my heart. Um, and she is the sister. She has a bunch of brothers and sisters. Some of them are, of course, Phaedra, Glaucus. Catrius, lots and lots. She's got uh, four brothers, one, two, three, four, five, six brothers and one sister. Um, she's also the half-sister of the Minotaur. And this is really where um, the story begins. And so Pasiphae um, is either punished or entranced by this white bull, this famous bull that Poseidon so supposedly gifts King Minos. And um, some scholars write that King Minos offends Poseidon and Poseidon sends this bull as a revenge and makes Pasiphae fall in love with the bull um, or that this bull is offered part of the bull leaping of Crete. So there was a lot of um, games and performances with bulls in Crete. 
bulls are a major symbol and animal in, in the island of Crete. And, and so this beautiful white bull is given as a gift. Either way, Pasiphae ends up having sex with this bull, which the imagery alone is disturbing as heck. But if that's not disturbing enough, she becomes pregnant um, with this bull's offspring and creates this monstrosity. Again, I say that in quotation monstrosity, the minotaur. And it across the board in history, the minotaur is a monstrosity, an abomination, a punishment. Um, and it's important to remember that what is a monster or a monstrosity is defined, of course, by writers and by those who, who recorded myths. And so there's this sort of fearsome creature that reminds Pasiphae of her infatuation, momentary infatuation, but particularly punishes King Minos. However, King Minos decides to use the Minotaur as a power play because this monster um, digests and consumes other human beings. And so King Minos uses this abomination to bring Athens to an agreement that they would send every year a tribute of 14 young people, seven girls and seven virgins and seven boys. Um, and so again, it's really fascinating. I don't think we have enough time to go into the Minotaur, although it'd be really fascinating to look at Minotaur culture because this monster is a tool for power or a representation of power and actually works in King Minos's favorite favor. But Ariadne is not not happy about having this monstrous um, brother. Now, we don't know anything about Ariadne's childhood. I know that a lot of historical fiction has been written about her childhood. Uh, we know that Daedalus, uh, the great um, inventor, was living in Crete at this time, perhaps in King Minos's palace. Um, he to him is attributed the labyrinth, the creation of the labyrinth that keeps the Minotaur um, locked up. But I'm going to argue that the labyrinth is actually an ancient, ancient pre-Cretan symbol. Um, and so I don't think that Daedalus, Daedalus really would have had to come up with much because I think the labyrinth was already in the imagination and consciousness of the Cretans and 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 all, everyone else that was. Actually, everyone in the Mediterranean would have understood the labyrinth symbolically at that time. And so, but anyways, Daedalus is accredited to building this uh, labyrinth. Um, and so we don't actually have any childhood stories. Like I said, Homer and Hesiod are the earliest uh, primary source text. Um, I'm going to share with you some other primary source texts that we have, but they are the earliest. And so there is no childhood references but we do know that as a princess of Crete, Ariadne had um, lots of power, lots of influence. And I would say lots of opportunity to learn and by and, and education, I mean education. And so by the time Theseus arrives um, with Young Theseus arrives as part of the tribute, as one of the tributes. And, and uh, in, in the background of Theseus' story, of course, is that he volunteers to be part of the tribute because, you know, how do you perform, a, how do you become a hero without performing heroic acts? And so um, 
in Theseus's own side story, he hears about this tribute that Athens give to Crete every year, and he goes along and says, "No, I'm going to kill the Minotaur." Blah blah blah. When um, when Ariadne sees, hold on, when Ariadne sees Theseus, uh, we're told that this is love at first sight. She falls in love with him right away, um, which is really interesting because. I suppose that she would have seen lots of Athenian young men show up um, and die at the hands of the Minotaur. And as a priestess of Crete, she would have been part of the ritual sacrifice of the rituals before the sacrifice. So she would have really had been witness to much of this massacre um, leading these individuals um, to the labyrinth itself. Now, when I was in Crete, I don't know if you guys have seen my pictures um, or my TikTok stories. When I was in Crete, there is this cave that is the unofficial cave that they call the labyrinth, which is really interesting. Um, and it is probably not the labyrinth. I mean, historically, it was a quarry for rocks, uh, quarry, rock quarry, uh, mineral quarry. Anyways, and um, historically, especially in the last couple of hundred years, people were mining in there, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the way that this cave looks is like it is sculpted into a labyrinth. It's very, very cool. And if and if you haven't seen it, uh, feel free to check out. I think I, I posted I walk, my walkthroughs on TikTok and I'll post some of my walkthroughs on uh, my YouTube channel called Artemis Expert where, um, where I'll be posting some of these adventures. But the reason why I bring that up is because as you walk up to this cave, even if it's an unofficial cave, okay, as you walk up to this cave, there's a really eerie feeling of, because it's so labyrinthian in nature, there's this really eerie feeling. And the thing that really struck me is just imagining these young people, imagine that there's a monster behind what you see and just imagining these young people walking into this cave and knowing that there's a monster inside that cave waiting for you. And it sort of echoes and there's these sharp turns you can't see behind these, you know, these uh, walls that are there. And so it's very disturbing. Anyways, we are told that Ariadne, I have after having witnessed a few years of of this, uh, sees Theseus and falls immediately in love with him. So, how what happens to them too? The story is a bit unclear. All that we know for sure is that Ariadne helps Theseus defeat the Minotaur out of love or perhaps infatuation. But I think that there is more to the story in the sense that. Ariadne helps Theseus defeat the Minotaur in the most simplest of ways. She basically gives him a string, a red string, to tie, let's say, to himself or whatever, and tie to the entrance of the um, labyrinth, and then, you know, go in there. So the string is dragging, defeat the Minotaur, which, of course, Theseus's muscles are already ready to do, and then come back. So the thing that's really fascinating to me about the story that people overlook because people go, oh, yeah, you know, Theseus took on the Minotaur and he's so strong and so powerful and so fearless and blah, blah, blah. And the Minotaur was larger than life. You can imagine half bull, half man, top half is bull, bottom half is man. 
uh, and he's a carnivorous being, et cetera, et cetera. But the thing that I find really fascinating that people don't talk about is the ingenuity, the inventive way in which Ariadne helps him achieve this feat, right? It, it, sometimes it makes me smile a little bit because I'm like, did Theseus, Theseus have not figured out to leave himself a trail to return out of the labyrinth? I mean, are ancient Greek heroes that uninventive? <laughs> and one could argue that looking at Her- Her- Heracles, yes, absolutely. Absolutely, they are. Um, and so... I find it fascinating how simple it is and yet how effective it was. So she helps him. So without her help or without her suggestion to perform this string uh, attachment, he wouldn't have been able to come out. Um, And so he would have been ineffective. So basically, Ariadne, I would say, is almost an equal partner. I mean, I guess we can give Theseus a bit of... uh, credit for physically taking on the Minotaur. But anyways, sorry, I could rant about Theseus. I'm not a great fan of Theseus. I think he's a bit of a douche. And so you can probably tell that. But in this case, I think that he would not have been successful without Ariadne. I think that he was quite a powerful, physically powerful hero. So I would give him that. And I think that he probably was his intention was so much to be a hero and he was being called to be a hero and he felt called to be a hero. So I think that in that way, you know, that is, I'll give him credit where that credit is due because there were so many other young tributes that did not, could not take on the Minotaur. You know, you can imagine seven young men, seven young men, not planning how to handle this minotaur. Anyways, here I go in this whole rant about like the logistics of defeating the minotaur and how many guys and like, you know, 14 humans could not take on a minotaur. You know, they couldn't plan ahead. Anyways, but that's the logistics. We're talking myth, you know, et cetera. Um, and uh, so, okay, let's give Theseus the credit for overtaking the minotaur supposedly on his own. And then he finds his way back. And he promises Ariadne uh, that he will take her home and marry her. Okay. And then this is where we get to the weird parts. Because let me tell you what, a little bit what happens before I read you the primary text. But because there is a great deal of debate about what happens to split up this couple. And so Theseus takes Ariadne away. He he wants to take her back to Athens. He promises to marry her. And according to Homer, they hadn't been intimate yet. Um, according to other scholars, he may have said, sed- and um, actually, no, no, I'm sorry. Because according to Homer, Homer is an interesting figure now that I think about it, because he says that he had no joy of her, which can be seen as no intimacy. However, he says that Artemis slays Ariadne because of the witness of Dionysus. Now, many scholars have said that that means that Ariadne and, Di- and Theseus were having sex or an intimate an intimate moment in the cave of Dionysus on the island of Naxos, and that offended Dionysus enough for, Arte- for him to send Artemis to kill her. Now, let me just tell you that that makes no sense whatsoever, okay? Um, because... 
I don't think that Artemis would have just slain somebody because Dionysus said so, although her and Dionysus are quite close. It doesn't really make sense, but we'll talk about that in the next slide. The one thing that I want to read to you is the primary text around what happens. Now, this primary text is later, right? A good, you know, 500, 600 years later after Homer and Hesiod. So I want you to take that with a bit of a grain of salt because this story would have made it through hundreds and hundreds of years and repeat it, being repeated over and over. So Diodorus Siculus says, Theseus, on his voyage back from Crete together with Ariadne, was entertained as a guest by the inhabitants of the island of Naxos. So there were already people living on the island of Naxos. There was even a king there, etc. And Theseus, seeing in a dream Dionysus threatening him if he would not forsake Ariadne in favor of the god, left her behind him there in his fear and sailed away. And Dionysus led Ariadne away by night to the mountain, which is now known as Drios. And first of all, the god disappeared, and later also Ariadne was never seen again. Okay. So that doesn't give us very much information other than the fact that the excuse here for Theseus abandoning Ariadne and Naxos is that um, Dionysus came to him in a dream and threatened him and Theseus didn't want to take on the god and uh, disappeared. And then somehow Dionysus seduced, took, etc. Uh, Ariadne and they both disappeared. Now Plutarch, which is in the second century CE, so even later, I would, you know, a good thousand years later after Homer, gives us a longer story. And he says, there are many other stories about Ariadne, but they do not agree at all. Yeah. Thanks, Plutarch. Some say that she hung herself because she was abandoned by Theseus. That's news to Homer. Others that she was conveyed to Naxos by sailors and there lived with Onarius, god of the wine, Dionysus, the, pri the priest of Dionysus, sorry. Onarius is the priest of Dionysus. So she lived there with him and that she was abandoned by Theseus because he loved another woman. Not surprising, but again, news to both Homer and Hesiod. Moreover, some say that Ariadne actually had sons by Theseus, so Enopean. Staphylus, and among these also Chios, who says of his own native city, this once Theseus's son founded Onopian. So basically what he's saying here is that the sons that are claimed to belong to Dionysus later could also have been Theseus, some people say, which of course implies that um, Ariadne and Theseus lived together for some time, which also implies that she made it to Athens or that they were stuck on the island of Naxos long enough to have three sons. That's very confusing. Now, the most auspicious of these legendary tales are in the mouths of all men, as I may say. So everyone talks about it. But a very peculiar account of these matters is published in Paeon the Amethusian, which is an, an, another scholar, an ancient scholar or writer. He says that Theseus, driven out of his course by a storm to Cyprus and having with him Ariadne, who was big with child, in sore sickness and distress from the tossing sea, so she was already pregnant and very sick, set her on shore alone, but that he himself, while trying to scour the ship, trying to bring the ship in, was borne out to sea again. The women on the island of Naxos, accordingly, took Ariadne into their care and tried to comfort her in, in the discouragement caused by her loneliness, brought her forged letters purporting to have been written to her by Theseus, ministered to her aid during the pangs of pregnancy, and gave her a burial when she died before her child was born. 
Peon, this author quoted by Plutarch, says further that Theseus came back and was greatly afflicted and left a sum of money with the people of the island, enjoying, enjoining them to sacrifice to Ariadne. And this is when this is from where some of the cult to Ariadne was developed. And we'll talk about the cult to Ariadne soon. Some of the Naxians also have their a story of their own, says Plutarch, that there were two Minoses and two Ariadnes, one of whom they say was married to Dionysus in Naxos and bore him Staphylus and his brother, and the other of a later time, having, car- having been carried off by Theseus and then abandoned by him, came to Naxos, accompanied by a nor- nurse named Corsini, whose tomb they show, and that this Ariadne also died there. So by the time we get to Plutarch's story, which is the one I've just read, there are numerous, numerous tales being told about Ariadne and Dionysus and this love triangle, right? Numerous stories with numerous parental responsibilities and husband responsibilities and all of that. Um, Fictional authors over time have tried to fill in these gaps, you know, so one of the good and bad things, I guess, but one of the good things of having such a story that has such vagueness, certainly in its earliest primary rendition, is that historical fiction can really fill in the gaps of these stories. For example, I had mentioned Mary Renault's work earlier. Um, in her work, The King Must Die, she talks about how when Theseus and Ariadne reach Naxos, they take part in these uh, bacchanal celebrations in honor of Dionysus. And while drunk and high on the festival and everything else, um, Ariadne, along with other women on the island, dismembered the king of Naxos in a frenzy sacrifice to Dionysus. And so Theseus is so disgusted by this that he leaves for Athens without her. So this is historical fiction in the sense of using primary text to create other stories. Um, Chaucer, later on, he writes in his Legend of Good Women, he includes an episode on Ariadne. Um, and he calls Ariadne a cast-off victim of the self-serving Theseus. And so Theseus is ungrateful for her help that Ariadne bravely gave him. And actually, uh, Saucer calls Theseus the great untruth of love. Yeah, And he actually accuses Theseus of wanting Ariadne's sister, Phaedra, to be his wife instead, the younger, uh, the much younger uh, sister. Euripides also writes... Uh, Euripides is an ancient Greek writer, and he writes that Theseus leaves Ariadne because of the goddess Athena, who is, of course, the patron of Athens, and that Athena convinces him that Ariadne is a distraction and therefore he must leave her behind. Because again, Ariadne would have been seen as a foreigner, right? And I think that this is actually uh, closer to the truth of why Theseus leaves Ariadne. I think that because Ariadne had helped him murder her own brother, this is something that the Greeks really frowned upon for many, many generations, which is family murder. And if you remember from our episode on the Furies and the Harpies, the job of the Furies was to punish anyone that committed family murder or matricide or patricide or any of those things. And so because... um, 
Ariadne has committed that sin, that sin taints her. And so him bringing her back to Athens would have been a great bounty. You know, here I've come, I've beat the Minotaur and I've come back with the son, with the daughter of Minos. But Phaedra would have been a better option because while Phaedra was younger, she was untainted. And by that, I mean, she didn't have this blood taint of helping to murder her own half-brother. And so I think that this is probably the more realistic as far as context or cultural realism, you know, um, that why Theseus would have left um, Ariadne behind. And so he used her, you know, to succeed, but then he didn't want to have that blood taint, that that familial blood taint in his own family, because if he had children with her, they would carry that blood taint as well. And then bringing her to Athens, he would taint Athens with that, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that Phaedra was definitely a better option for him. Uh, whether or not he planned this whole thing out or whether it happened as he went along, who knows? Nobody can really say. But I think that that is really the, the truth. Now, there are some stories that say that this was an unwilling separation, that um, that they didn't want to be separated, that they were in love, and that really what happened was that Dionysus falls in love with Ariadne, and that he sort of breaks them up, he forces them apart, either with Artemis, or on his own, or threatening Theseus, or whatever he does, um, that Dionysus is the one that breaks up this couple. So again, I leave that to you to decide. Um, there's a lot of unknown. Like I said, my favorite theory is that Theseus abandons her because he can't carry that family taint. I think that that's probably the most logical one. Um, however, there's no way to know for sure. So, you know, ancient dating, right? Ancient dating. Is it as complicated as modern day dating? Well, I don't know. Dionysus and... Ariadne certainly find themselves in a weird love triangle. And then Ariadne picks Dionysus or is kept by Dionysus. But whatever the beginning of that love affair is, there are, this love affair is so favored in the ancient world, in the Greco-Roman world, so favored. There are so many pieces of art. There are mosaics. There are you know, wall art all over Pompeii. There is, you know, wall art all over, you know, frescoes all over Rome of uh, Artemis, uh, Artemis, hello, Ariadne and Dionysus. There is a lot to say about this uh, love story. One of my favorite uh, of the primary sources for this, um, Apollonius Rhodius, he writes the Argonaut Argonautica, and he talks, he says, um, a purple robe, which the divine graces had made with their own hands for Dionysus in Naxos. Later, Dionysus gave it to his son, Thoas. Thoas left it to Hypsipyle, and she, with many other pieces of finery, gave it to Jason as a parting gift. It was a work of art, a joy forever, as pleasing to the eyes as the sense of the touch, this purple robe. And it still gave out the ambrosial perfume it received when the Lord Dionysus lay on it, tipsy with wine and nectar, embracing Minos's daughter, the fair young Ariadne, whom Theseus carried off from Cronus and abandoned on the island of Dia or Naxos. I love this imagery, this purple robe 
um, you know, purple as the color of the of life force and fertility and and rebirth and um, this purple robe of built by the made by the the hands of the graces that is passed down from son to family member, son to daughter to family member, etc., all the way to Jason in that still carries the scent of Dionysus and Ariadne lying, the ambrosial scent of them lying um, in this beautiful robe or blanket. Um, and so I thought that was really beautiful. So there's a lot of romance that is involved um, in the story of Dionysus and in the story of their their romance together, right? Um, there are a few versions of how they fall in love, but basically... Ariadne is found is found lying on the beach, more or less, in Nexus by Dionysus, who either arrives there on his own or arrives there on a pirate ship. Um, pirates had taken him; they thought he was a man, or no, an everyday man, and then they play. They, you know, they set on ready to murder him. And Dionysus, who is often a trickster god, plays a trick on them and then turns them into different animals or throws them off the ship and. You know, he comes, the ship kind of lands on the island of Naxos. There's all these stories um, of how they arrived on the island. But once they arrived on the island, um, they fall deeply, deeply in love. Uh, Dionysus, if Ariadne was still sleeping when he arrives, there's lots of stories of him falling in love with her while she's sleeping. Um, there's stories, like I said, that Theseus and Ariadne may have been intimate or cuddling or sleeping together anywhere near a cave of Dionysus and Dionysus saw Ariadne and wanted her for himself. Um, there's lots and lots of stories or he threatened Theseus, you know, leave Ariadne to me. Um, all of these kinds of story. Uh, there's a common interpretation that um, the two were in his sacred grove and that he saw her and fell in love with her. But Normally, when two people are being intimate in a God's sacred grove and he is offended, normally that leads to death. You know, that very rarely leads to the God then sort of coming to pick up Ariadne and uh, taking him for herself. So I don't know how popular that story was, um, but it's a bit unusual. Like I said, Homer does say that Artemis slays her, but notice that Art that Homer... Um, does not go on to describe the wedding of Dionysus and Ariadne and the children and all that kind of stuff in his in his text. So that's a little bit, again, uh, make of the love story as you like. But one of the things that we know is that it was a very popular love story that people absolutely love this idea of a human, kind of human, a special human married to a demigod. And they had a successful... And by that, I mean, they were able to procreate a successful and committed relationship, obviously for many years, right? So if they have five children together, that's lots and lots of time uh, before Ariadne is tragically killed. So the romance of it all is a bit unusual, I think, and very unique. And it's very, it reminds me very much of Christianity in some ways, in the sense that Ariadne is a very special human, right? She's got all these special bloodlines and she gives birth to the offspring of a god. So there's a lot of sort of Mary, Virgin Mary allusions there early, early, of course. And 
Dionysus, like I said at the top of this episode, is a Jesus, very much a Jesus figure. He's always been a suffering God. He's a God that dies in the spring and is reborn. Lots of his um, rituals, initiations, practices are around wine drinking and uh, a kind of form of cannibalism, tearing the body apart, sometimes eating the body there's like a weird kind of, there's lots of stories that happen in the wilderness with his main ads and his satires. Um, they're also the most interesting couple because at their wedding is um, the all of the main ads and the satires. Yeah? So we're going to move on to what's it like being married to a god? And again, these two seem like the most amazing rebel couple because they have the coolest friends. So the main ads, of course, were all the wild women or women being wild and free. Um, and so there's all this, there's this community of women uh, that worship Dionysus and are his main ads. And then the satyrs are sort of the rebel men, let's say, the, the wildness of male masculinity. Satyrs have always represented sort of the, the prowess and sexuality of large masculinity, you know? And so there's this sense of, um, so tears are of course half man half horse and so there's this power and there's this uh, sexual appetite and so imagine that they've got the, the main ads and the satyrs at their parties and everyone is drinking and partying and having sex and in the wild and in the forest. I mean, this life is a dream life, really. You know, it's a, it's a modern dream life. You and your beautiful God husband or you and your stunning princess wife are living on an island or in a forest or wherever they were living or in Olympia, for example, depends on the story. And all of your besties are wild women and wild men in the forest. And so it's no wonder that they had five sons. <laughs> it's a, it's a real uh, environment of fertility and of, and, and of a good time. And it is unclear historically whether Ariadne participated as a priestess of Dionysus. There are some scholars that lean towards that, yes. Or whether Ariadne sat on the throne next to Dionysus. That's always, that's often depicted in art. So she's his equal, you know, um, not sort of a servant of him, but his equal. And watch the festivities going on. Um, and so... Being married to a god, especially for Ariadne, is really, really great. And the other thing that's really fascinating is that Dionysus does not cheat on Ariadne. He does not have any affairs. Um, he's ironically surrounded by maenads who are worshipping him. And yet we don't have stories in which he is um, unfaithful to her, which is, again, fascinating. Uh, with Persephone and Hades, like we talked about last season, they're also a very committed couple. But there is that one story of Hades perhaps having an affair with Minthe um, and Persephone punishing her. With Ariadne, we don't, we don't have that. Uh, Dionysus seems to be faithful to her. And again, I think that's what really feeds the romance um, and, you know, as scholars, we like to think that in the ancient world, marriages were not about romance. They tended to be more contractual, which is true. But the fact that the ancients painted this couple and 
really worship this romantic story. Often when they're painted together, Cupid is always around. So there's this kind of there's this kind of sense of love, you know, like like affection and love. Um and I'm not saying that that would have been unheard of for the actual Greeks living their everyday lives. Of course, I think human beings have always fallen in love with each other. But historically speaking, as far as scholars writing, love was sort of a a silly thing to do. You know, silly things young people do is fall in love, but it's not something that leads to marriage or to commitment or things like that. But the fact that we have Ariadne and Dionysus so popular is quite telling, I think. I think that there's something there that perhaps classicists have not yet really analyzed in the sense that I think that we read the documents of law and philosophy of ancient philosophers, Greek and Roman. And we take that sometimes too literally, right? When really we should be thinking about people, ancient people, certainly male, male people of power that wrote these things. We're really looking at, this is the way we want to be seen. That is not necessarily the way we might live. And so I think that looking at the everyday people of the ancient world with a more humanistic lens and understanding that actually humans have not changed, in fact, almost at all between now and a thousand years ago, 2000 years ago, and, and five and 8,000 years ago in the sense of their emotional being uh, and their feelings um, leads me to think that perhaps an analysis of this particular romantic story and the way that it inspired so much art and so many other stories is important. And I think it reflects the experiences or the desires of the ancients uh, in the ancient world. So um, what are the, what do the children do? I've listed the children here for you. Let me see. Some of their children become quite, quite famous. So we've got Onapian, Staphylus, Ceramus, Peperetus, and Thoas. Okay, those are the children of her and Dionysus. And they are, we're told that they are resident heroes that actually go out and spread the technique um, of wine culture of the cult of Dionysus. So they are the missionaries of the cult of Dionysus. Yeah. Onepian becomes king of Chios, which we've talked about, which was a land that was given to him by his mother's uncle. And actually he's famous, Onepian, for blinding Orion uh, and making wine, of course, making wine. Uh, Staphylus would live in Naxos, um, but he also benefited from his very uh, noble family. And many of many of her sons were also generals um, in uh, militaries. Ceramus would become the lord of one of the districts of Athens. Uh, Peparethus would become king of the island that would then bear his name, the island of Peparethus. And Thoas would also receive land uh, from his uncle. Um, and he was given land of Lemnos. And then he would rule over that land uh, before subsequently becoming the king of Taurus, where he encounters Orestes. So here is a small connection to Artemis again. Orestes carries 
the cult image of Artemis Teropolis um, to Sparta, right? And uh, actually, sorry, I'm sorry, to, Bur to Ruran. And actually, Artemis, yeah, actually, now that I think of it, sorry, there's a lot of those connections. Um, and interestingly, the son of Ariadne, Thoas, becomes the king of Taurus, Taurus, and he meets Orestes, um, and so I'm making this little connection here with Artemis. There is nothing to say that he meets Orestes while he's carrying the cult image of Artemis Terobolus. But it's kind of fascinating that these familial interactions happen between god children and gods and all this kind of thing. Now, Orestes is, of course, the son of Agamemnon, who um, is charged with killing his own mother, Clytemestra, but then is cleansed of that familial sin by Athena, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so there's lots of interesting connections between this familial tree of the gods and particularly the Olympians. So what happens to Ariadne in the end? So in the end, tragically, Ariadne, we are told, dies um, because at the hands of the, uh, at the hands, uh, she dies when what happens if you're married to a god and you die well there's a couple of things that happen to Ariadne now we've talked about how she might have died once she landed on the island of Naxos because she was pregnant and then she was seasick so that's one of the things we talked about how she might have died in the cave of Dionysus because Artemis killed her. But we haven't talked about her being killed by Perseus and Medusa's head, Perseus using Medusa's head to turn her into stone, which is the most popular story. In addition to the fact that, that we're told that Dionysus goes down into the underworld to save her. And in fact, Dionysus is famous for going down into the underworld and saving his mother Semele. And here we see him again going down into the underworld and saving his wife, Ariadne. This is no easy feat. Going into Hades and Persephone's land or space and then demanding or asking that two souls be released just because you love them so much is no easy feat. And it's not something that we should take lightly. But I thought that I would share with you Pausanias's descriptions of what happens between Dionysus and Perseus and why Ariadne becomes a victim of that. So Pausanias says, so he's walking around Greece in the second century CE, around the same time that Plutarch is writing, actually. And he says, they say that the god Dionysus, having made war on Perseus, afterward, afterwards laid aside his enmity and received great honors at the hands of the Argives, including this precinct set specially apart for himself, where Pausanias is traveling. It was afterwards called the, precincts, the precinct of Cretes, or the Cretan, because when Ariadne died, Dionysus buried her here. But Lysias says that when the new temple of Dionysus was being rebuilt, an earthenware coffin was found, and that it was Ariadne's. He also said that both he himself and the other Argives had seen it. 
So this is an, a, a totally different and interesting story. And, and it claims that somehow Perseus and Dionysus made up and that Dionysus buries Ariadne at Crete. And that at some point, somebody or a bunch of people find a coffin that was to Ari- Ariadne's and a bunch of the archives had witnessed it. Um, another story that Plutarch tells as far as the end of Ariadne's life, he brings back the author, Paeon, the Amethusian. And he says that Paeon claims that Theseus, driven out of his course by a storm. Oh, I've already read this to you. My apologies. Uh, he basically says, of course, that Ariadne dies in childbirth. And the most famous, I would say, of all of these stories come from the 3rd century BCE. Okay, so of a couple of hundred years before Plutarch and a couple of hundred years, a few hundred years before Pausanias, where people like Apollonius and Aratus and other scholars talk about how Dionysus takes the crown that he gave as a wedding present to Ariadne and throws it up into the sky and creates a constellation, the constellation Corona, which is the memorial of his dead Ariadne. So this is the last story or the most popular story, I think, of Dionysus and Ariadne. And that is that Dionysus and Perseus were having a a fight or whatever. Perseus still had the head of Medusa. And whether on purpose or by accident, Ariadne steps in between the two of them and she is turned to stone. Now, either before she dies or after she dies, depends on the story, depends on the story. So Dionysus throws up her crown into the sky and makes her a constellation or after she dies, he goes down into the underworld, retrieves her soul, and takes it back up to Olympus, where they live together. So Diodorus, also who writes in the first century BC, he says the same story. You know, uh, Dionysus kept Ariadne as his lawful wife, so he was faithful to her, loving her so much, loving her exceedingly. Indeed, after her death, he considered her worthy of immortal honors because of the affection that he had for her, and placed among the stars the heaven of the heaven, the crown of Ariadne, which again is the crown that he gave her on her on their wedding. So. This gift, the crown of Ariadne that was given to to her was made or was a gift from Aphrodite and the graces. And it was so magnificent that it becomes a constellation in the skies. So one can argue that Ariadne, interestingly, had reached heroic proportions And by that, I mean that she became a constellation. To become a a constellation and to become immortal, to be given the gift of immortality means that you must have done something incredibly powerful and and meaningful in your life. Uh, Often heroes, of course, are turned into constellations. But Ariadne is a hero on her own. Not only is she heroic in the form of a wife, giving Dionysus loyalty and sons, and you know pretty much everything he wanted but i think that there is more to that in the sense that she is intuitive she is powerful she is brave and she overcomes the situations in which she's placed uh whether 
by choice or against her will. I mean, with Theseus, it it seems as though she went with him willingly. And certainly she would have after, of course, killing her half-brother. But what happens afterwards becomes, of course, out of her control. And so she turns that into perhaps something even better for herself. So the cult of Ariadne. The cult of Ariadne is something that, again, I don't think a lot of people talk about, or perhaps they don't talk about enough. Um, The cult of Ariadne is a tradition in which people worship Ariadne and in which people offer, create offerings for her, entice her to speak to her husband Dionysus uh, and create sacrifices in her honor. Yeah. Uh, and because Plutarch tells that story in which Theseus comes back, for example, for her when she's pregnant with his child and, in, and, and entreats the women of the island of Naxos to perform rituals in honor of, of Dionysus and I'm sorry, in honor of Ariadne, we have this story um, of how that takes place. So for example, Plutarch tells us that Theseus, when he came back, um, asked, asked the women and the people of Naxos to create two statues in her honor, one in silver and one in bronze. And he says that at the sacrifice in her honor on the second day of the month, Gorpius, one of their young men lies down and imitates the cries and gestures of women in travail, which is women in pregnancy. So imagine, okay, and that they call the grove in which they show her tomb, the grove of Ariadne Aphrodite. Now, some of the Naxians uh, have a bit of a different story about that, but this story is really interesting. The reenactment by a young man of the pregnant Ariadne suffering labor pains. So apparently we're told that Theseus had created or established this. So first he asked them to build two statues of her, one bronze, one silver. And then he says, you know, on the second, on the second month or on the second day of the month, sorry, of the month of Gorpius, um, they would reenact her in labor pains, but a young man would reenact this in, um, the situation. And that has so much, I mean, there's so much there. Um, A lot of that has to do with the fact that perhaps as the wife of Dionysus, Dionysus is a very gender fluid God, um, an ambiguously gender fluid God, all of those words. Um, And many of the rites to Dionysus that were performed by Maenads were talked about among men. Um, as um, as a place where if they wanted to witness any of those rites, they would have to dress as women and enter, you know, a, let's say a, a women's space. So what's identified as a women's space. <clears throat> and so there's lots of stories um, of men dressing up as women to try to attend or infiltrate the Maenads group. So it's really fascinating to me, this connection that Plutarch makes when he says in order to worship at the temple of Ariadne, uh, you must not only dress as a woman, dress as a pregnant woman, and then wail around on the floor 
in labor pain, labor pains, pretending that you're in labor. So that's that's really fascinating. That's really interesting. Um, Plutarch also tells us that Theseus instituted the Athenian festival of the Ascaphoria. And it is said that he did not take away with him all the maidens on whom the lot fell at that time, but picked out two young men of his acquaintance who had fresh and girlish faces, but eager and manly spirits and changed their outward appearance almost entirely by giving them warm baths and keeping them out of the sun by arranging their hair and by smoothing their skin and beautifying their complexions with unguents, with oils and moisturizers. He also taught them to imitate maidens as closely as possible in their speech and their dress and their gait and to leave no difference that could be observed and then enroll them among the maidens who were going to Crete and was undiscovered by by anyone. And when he, he came back, he himself and these two young men, they headed the procession arrayed as they are now arrayed those who carry the wine branches of the way that the procession takes place now they carry these in honor of Dionysus and Ariadne because of their part in the story or rather because they came back home at a time of the vintage Um, and the women are called super carriers they take part in the procession and share in the sacrifice an imitation of the mothers of the young men and maidens of whom the lot fell to go to the minotaur um for these kept coming with bread and meat for their children. Okay. And so this is a festival that Theseus is said to have established in Athens. Okay. Uh, and Plutarch tells us that the details for this history can be find in the, found in the history of Daemon. So what's really fascinating <laughs> is that Theseus takes the time with two young men that look very girlish. I say that in quotation and, and spends so, so, so much time um, turning these two young men into women, what passes for women, um, so that they can infiltrate the group that's being offered alongside with him to uh, the Minotaur. So this is before he meets Ariadne. And then him and these two young men, well, him and all the the procession returns from Athens. Obviously, they hadn't been killed by the Minotaur. And in in the procession of the return, they offer sacrifice or offer uh, present offerings to Ariadne and Dionysus. I mean, this whole thing is mind-bogglingly complex. Um, the fact that the fact that Theseus wants to add two more men to his group is interesting because as far as we know Theseus fights the Minotaur on his own the fact that he takes the time to transform these two men into almost like drag queens of the time or certainly men that pass not even drag queens actually men that pass and obviously live as women um but then are powerful in his defeat of the Minotaur and his return are really interesting. And then the fact that the procession coming back has these two young men right behind Theseus, which is a very uh, a primary position in the procession, and that the procession itself is in honor of Ariadne and Dionysus is really complex. It's, it's really multi-layered here. And that this um, festival 
is an Athenian festival um, called the Oscoporia. So that is that happens on a yearly basis. Very, very interesting. Um, very powerful. The Furthermore, the cult of Ariadne, which we're going to dive into a little bit more in after the podcast. And for those of you that are new, after the podcast is a short 20-minute half an hour episode um, that I place uh, on Patreon for my Patreon supporters, where we dive into a, a one aspect of whatever we're talking about in the main episode. And so one of the aspects that we're going to do in the, after the podcast will be this idea of the queen of the labyrinth, the mistress of the labyrinth. But I would like to say here that Ariadne becomes the mistress of the labyrinth. And like I said, at the beginning of the episode, it is highly likely that she was already a mistress of the labyrinth. And by that, I mean that the labyrinth itself as a symbol was a symbol of spiritual power, a symbol of self-reflection, a symbol of inner knowledge, a symbol of secrecy, a symbol of secret knowledge. And Ariadne has been associated with the labyrinth, I think is the primary, one of the primary divinities that is associated with the labyrinth itself. And as such, this makes her, this gives her secret knowledge. And in, so in that way, she can often be referred to as the great goddess or a great goddess. Um, and in Crete, there are several great goddesses that are unnamed, particularly around the snake goddess and the goddess of different Minoan cults that, again, are very much unexplained and very much still a mystery to this day. And so th these names for her, the mistress of the labyrinth, the great goddess, the Patnia, um, this would have been something that a Cretan princess or a Cre Cretan priestess would have inherited as far as names and knowledge. And as such, this gives her sacred knowledge, right? Sacred knowledge. And we are told that Ariadne may have danced. And well, we're told that Theseus actually uh, was famous for uh, teaching the 14 tributes a famous dance. And that this dance allowed the young men and women um, to survive the Minotaur. And that then this dance is performed for Aphrodite and Artemis later on at different festivals. And that this dance may have been done in honor of the marriage of Theseus and Ariadne. So there is this sacred dance that's often associated with Ariadne. And Jennifer... Uh, Saint talks about Ariadne dancing as a child in her historical fiction called Ariadne um, and Daedalus creating a platform for her to dance on. And I think that that that's traced back from this idea that there's a sacred dance, almost like a secret dance. Um, and that this dance is a celebratory dance and it was done uh as the tributes came out of the labyrinth and it was danced, it was danced as they returned from the labyrinth successful, of course, having not been killed by the Minotaur and that it was then danced by Theseus and Ariadne should they have gotten married, which again is highly unlikely. But anyway, this dance is really interesting. This idea of dancing and the idea of dancing Ariadne and often dance has been a, a medium of transforming information of transmuting information and often dance of course has meaning 
and interpretation and artistic qualities that tell a story. And so many can say that perhaps Ariadne had a secret knowledge and that that secret knowledge may have been translated in this sacred dance. Um, And so there are stories, of course, of priestesses in Crete performing a sacred dance. Um, No one knows what this dance is and no one knows how or when this dance happened, but it's uh, told enough and repeated enough through primary source that we think that there was a dance that happened. And of course, there's lots of dancing that goes on, like I said, for Aphrodite, for Artemis in the processions. So it's really fascinating that and sad in a way that we no longer have the the dances of that time because I think the dances themselves are a way of telling myth and storytelling. And so then that would have given us an additional view into the lives um, of these individuals and, and of of these mythological figures or or perhaps historical figures if if there was any evidence that Ariadne was a real individual, uh, which there is not. Um, I should say that there is not any evidence that Ariadne was a real historical person, but the story is so long ago that um, we really, like I said, if it predates Homer, we are in a place, again, of not having the documentation, right? Uh, We have the Palace at Nosos, we have Minoan culture, we have those kinds of artifacts, but we don't have a genealogy or a a historical document that says, hey, here's a familial, here's the royal family of Crete kind of thing. So um, going into the after the podcast session, um, as we wrap up this episode, some of the things that we're going to talk about is, um, again, the meaning of the labyrinth. I want to talk about Ariadne's name, which means the most holy or most holy. And I do really want to talk about death and rebirth and the rea- relationship of Ariadne and Persephone. So if you want to hear about that, um, join my Patreon um, and um, follow me on this after the podcast recording and see what you think of this relationship between um, these two very powerful divinities that had interestingly very powerful marriages. If you'd like to join me for after the podcast, please sign up for my Patreon and there you will receive early episodes of the pod- this podcast itself that then go public a week later, but you will also receive the short after the podcast um, episodes, which are exclusive to Patreon um, and in which we talk about all the secret things that go on, particularly in this case with Ariadne and Persephone and death and rebirth. So I'd like to thank you all for joining me. I hope that this was a lot of fun for you. I hope that it was interesting. And I look forward to hearing your, reading your comments. Um, You can follow me online and my social media everywhere. I am Artemis Expert. And let me know what you think. Let me know uh, what other 
interesting divinities or stories you might be interested in. And um, yeah, let me know if you enjoyed this podcast or this episode, whether you're watching it on YouTube or listening to it on Spotify. Thank you so much for being with me. I look forward to the season being full of fun and interesting um, topics. If you want to see all the topics, if you go to my YouTube channel, you can see that where the trailer is. There is a list underneath of all the topics for um, this season. And they're all exciting. I cannot wait to dive into the research for all of them. One of the things that takes me a while is doing the research for all of them um, and preparing, of course, uh, the the slides. But the research, the reason why I think research is important, first of all, I'm an academic, so that's part of my life. But um, there's a lot of there's a lot of discussion of myth always. And it's wonderful. But I think there has to be a voice or a few voices in which primary source is analyzed and discussed in a way that allows for the interpretation of all the other sources that come from that primary source. And so I am a fan of myth in popular culture, and I'm a fan of myth in history fiction, historical fiction, but I am so, so much a fan of myth in primary source. And the gaps and the mysteries left open by primary source are really the places that intrigue me. And so I hope that you are intrigued by those as well. You don't have to be, but um, but I, but those are the really the the the, the puzzles. You know, it's they're like they're like jigsaw puzzles that are not complete, and it's amazing to look at and try to figure out what the pieces are. And I love reading historical fiction for that because I think authors spend a lot of time trying to figure out what the puzzles are what the pieces are that are missing. But I think it's also amazing to just look at it and and understand and accept that the story is unfinished, that the story will forever be sort of a floating mystery. Um, and that's what makes it really wonderful. Um, that's what makes it really wonderful, I think. And that's what allows historians to have a job like me um, by looking at the gaps. And uh, you can look at the gaps for centuries to come, you know, and... Um, and hopefully people will continue to look at the gaps for centuries to come. So thank you so much for being here with me. And thank you so much for following and subscribing. Please share with anyone that you think might enjoy this kind of uh, podcast or this kind of channel. I'm very excited to, to hear from people and um, to continue doing this and continue having fun with you guys. So have a fantastic day. Thank you again. And I'll see you next time.